Let me once more say good morning to all of you. It is really good to be here with you this morning. Beautiful uh, June, believe it or not, it is June morning, warm summertime. Uh, Looking forward to the rest of this summer and the time we'll be able to spend together as we go through a series of sermons together. Before we start our sermon this morning, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for the glory of your creation. Father, we thank you for being the God who does create and who sustains. And Father, thank you for being a God who redeems. And Father, we thank you for the redemptive story that has been playing out over the centuries. And Father, we thank you for allowing us to be a part of that story. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice that he made. Thank you for the the cleansing of our sins. And Father, we look forward to the day that we will be together with him and with you in heaven. And Father, today as we look at your servant, John the Baptist, just pray that we'll have a deeper and greater appreciation of his role in your redemptive story. And also, Father, that we will learn some lessons from John's encounter with Jesus that will help us as we strive to to walk in Jesus' steps to become more and more like him as we strive to be disciples of him. And Father, this is our prayer through Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So, we are in the second week of a series that we're calling Face to Face with Jesus. Last week, we kicked it off with a sermon about Peter and the other apostles and an encounter that they had with Jesus. When Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some people say that you are Elijah, and some say that you are John the Baptist, and others say that you are a prophet. And then Jesus looked at them face to face and asked them a very penetrating question. He said, but who do you say that I am? And we saw that in that answer that the apostles, and Peter specifically, had to redefine who they were in light of who they believed Jesus Christ to be. And then today we're going to take a look at John the Baptist, or for our purposes this morning, as I've renamed him, John the Troublemaker. John the Troublemaker. John was a troublemaker in the very tradition of Elijah, who I believe in many ways was the original troublemaker. One of the great reasons to preach about John the Baptist is because you get to talk a little bit about Elijah, and Elijah is a lot of fun to talk about. You can find Elijah's story in the book of 1 Kings. Today we'll be around the chapters 17 and 18 if you'd like to turn to that. We won't be reading that whole story because it's fairly lengthy, but we will be talking a little bit about Elijah as we lead up to talking about John the Baptist. Elijah was a prophet in Samaria. He uh, served during a time of of, uh, various kings, all the kings that were identified as being evil because they had allowed pagan worship to come in among God's people. Uh, Most famously, probably, he encountered Ahab, and he encountered Ahab's notorious wife, Jezebel. Jezebel was a pagan herself, and she did a lot to bring in pagan religion and pagan practices among the Israelites. The gods that we will talk about are Baal and Asherah. And Jezebel is so notorious that Jezebel was systematically killing off God's prophets to the point where Elijah identified himself as the only prophet of God that was left in the land. So Elijah was very much an outsider. He was working outside the normal structure. He was working outside the political structure and in many ways working outside the religious structure of the land. 
He lived off the land in many ways. You'll remember the story of Elijah actually being fed by ravens during the time of drought. Uh, So Elijah was a kind of strange figure. And he was a troublemaker because he consistently and he fervently called for people to have soul allegiance to God. And he also called consistently and fervently for justice among the everyday people in everyday life. So Elijah was labeled a troublemaker. He was labeled a troublemaker by King Ahab himself. And I believe that King Ahab felt he was a troublemaker because he wasn't willing to just go along. He wasn't willing to accept the status quo. He wasn't content with people having a foot in each camp, a foot in the camp of the pagan gods and another foot in the God of Israel. And he was also considered to be a troublemaker because he wasn't afraid to confront He wasn't afraid to go head-to-head with people and point out what was wrong in the land. I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the Mount Carmel story, the story of God versus Baal, the story of Elijah versus Baal's prophets. I'll set it up a little bit. They're gathered at the top of this mountain, and all the people are gathered there, and Elijah is gathered there, and hundreds of prophets of Baal and Asherah are also gathered there. And Elijah sets it up as a contest between God and between Baal. And the way he sets up the contest is he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to each set up our own altar. You set up your altar to Baal, and I'll set up my altar to God. And on that altar, we'll place wood. And then we'll also each sacrifice a bull. We'll put the pieces of the bull on the altar. But we're going to stop there. We're not going to light the wood on fire. What we're going to do is we're going to each call on our gods to light the wood on fire, to actually bring the fire to the sacrifice. How does that sound? And all the people said, that sounds good. And Elijah said, and we'll know when this is over who the true God is. The God who sends fire will be the true God. And the people say, what you said is good. We like this plan. So Elijah decides that it's probably best for Baal's prophets to go first. So he allows them to have the stage, and he essentially pulls up a chair and sits down to watch the show that's about to take place. So the Baal prophets start calling out to Baal, saying, Baal, send down God. This starts early in the morning, and this goes on until noon, and the Bible says that no one answered, no one listened, no one was there. So no fire comes down. And then they decide, well, maybe if we dance around the altar, then maybe then the fire will come. So they begin to dance around the altar, and Elijah's still sitting aside watching the show as it's going on. And still nothing happens. No one's there. No one is listening. And then Elijah decides to be particularly helpful and to shout out some advice to the prophets of Baal. Advice like, um, maybe you should shout louder because maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe you should be even louder because maybe he's asleep and he needs awakening. He's really trying to help them out a great deal, but nothing happens. There's no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So then the prophets of Baal decide that we're really going to take drastic measures so that the fire will come down from Baal. So they begin to cut themselves. They begin to cut themselves and yell even louder, and still nothing happens. No one listens. No one is there. So they give up. It's Elijah's turn. Elijah makes a great show of things. He rebuilds God's altar. He brings the stones in and he builds it and he he puts wood on top of the altar. And then he even goes so far as to build a big trench around the altar. 
But he doesn't stop there. He says to the people, go get some big buckets of water and come drench the whole altar. Drench the bull, drench the wood, drench the altar. But he doesn't stop there. He says, go do it again. So a second time they come and they drench the altar. And he says, do it again. So a third time they bring water and they drench the entire altar. And then finally Elijah's ready to step up to center stage. And Elijah lifts his hands and he prays to God and he asks God to send down fire. And out of a cloudless sky, lightning comes down and sets everything on fire. It doesn't just set it on fire. It consumes the bull. It consumes the wood. It consumes even the rocks. And everybody says, God, the God of Israel is the true God. The God of Elijah is the true God. It's good stuff. It's a good story. It's a legendary story. And with this kind of story, you can see why Elijah captured the imagination of the people. And you can see why Elijah stayed in the consciousness of the Jewish people. In fact, many Jewish people consider Elijah to be the greatest prophet of all the prophets. And then the importance of Elijah only grows. As some 150 years later, Isaiah prophesies. He prophesies, we know, about the coming Messiah, but he also prophesied about one who is going to come. One who is going to come and point the way, pave the way for the Messiah. In Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, we read this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah speaks of a voice in the wilderness... He speaks of a voice in the wilderness heralding the coming of the Messiah, someone to prepare the way. And the Jewish people decided that that was Elijah, a new Elijah that would be coming in the future to bring and herald the way of the Messiah. So as the Old Testament period ended, as the conquered, as the humbled, as the devout Jews slowly made their way back to Jerusalem, Israel, all of Israel was awaiting the Messiah. But they weren't just awaiting the Messiah. They were also looking for another Elijah to point and pave the way for the Messiah. In fact, to this very day, observant Jews will set a place, an empty place at their tables. And that place is for Elijah as they anxiously await his return so that he will point the way to the Messiah that they don't believe has yet come. So now let's fast forward a few hundred years to the first century. A change of scenery has occurred now. We're now in the Jordan Valley. It's a harsh, bleak, and treacherous valley. But for a couple of hundred years, it's been home to numerous groups of people, numerous groups of Jewish people, numerous groups of faithful followers. They're people who are disillusioned with the status quo in Jerusalem. They're people who are disillusioned with the compromise that has gone on politically with their people. 
They're people who are trying to live in purity and, and rigor. And they're looking for the Messiah to come. They're looking for the Messiah to come and, and gather them up and usher in the kingdom of God. And it's in this setting that John appears in the desert. And amazingly enough, John is an Elijah-like character. He has a lot of the same characteristics of Elijah, so he starts to attract attention. He's living in the desert, so he's an outsider. He's dressed in those camel hair clothes, so he looks different. He's living off the land, locusts and wild honey. Locusts are grasshoppers. So if John the Baptist was in Rio Rancho or the west, west side right now, he'd be like, you know, really storing up the calories with what's going on over there. But most strikingly, he's speaking about something that resonates with the people. He's talking about the imminent arrival of God's kingdom. And that's exactly what they're looking for. In fact, John's message appears to have been pretty simple, pretty straightforward. He over and over says, repent because the kingdom of God is near. It's imminent. It's upon us. But his message wasn't just simple and it wasn't just direct. It was also a radical message. It was a radical message because when he called for people to be baptized, when he called for people to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, he wasn't preaching to the pagans. He wasn't preaching to the outsiders. He was preaching to the insiders. He was preaching to what, what we might call the believers. He was preaching to the children of Abraham. And like Elijah, he had a message to the insiders. He had a message to the children of Abraham. He had a message that you must have a faithful and exclusive relationship with your God. His message was being Jewish is not enough. Being a child of Abraham is not enough. And his message was, it's not okay to just talk the talk. But you also must walk the walk. Your lives must live out what you say that you believe. And his message was radical because he was talking about baptism for the remission of sins. But he was talking about this for Jewish people. He was talking about this for the insiders, for the believers. And for those people, baptism wasn't anything really new. They were very familiar with ritual washings that went on. But baptism for the remission of sins was reserved for pagans. It was reserved for outsiders. It was reserved for people who didn't have the pedigree of being children of Abraham. It was considered to be unnecessary. You didn't need to be baptized for the remissions of sins if you were one of the children of Abraham. So this was something very different that John was preaching. I want to pause here and consider a few questions. My question is, would we like John? Would we like John? And the reason I ask that question is because there's some things about John I think we might have a hard time about. We might consider him to be somewhat odd. That's the nicest word I could come up with. Somewhat odd. I mean, there is that dress thing that he has going on. I mean, it's even more radical than a bow tie, the way he was dressed. Um, There's the repent thing over and over again. Repent, repent, repent. He just wouldn't let it go. He wasn't really part of the proper avenues. He wasn't part of the church. He hadn't been to the right schools. He wasn't a member of the right synagogue. He was an outsider. And one of the things I think that we might have a problem with him is he had 
the gall to actually call out a public figure for his moral depravity. He confronted Herod Antipas as being morally deprived because of the actions that he had taken. He'd actually stolen his brother's wife and took her as his own wife and then divorced his wife to make room for his new wife. And John had a problem with that. I mean, we have a problem with that, don't we? Because after all, Herod was just following his own heart. He was probably in love. We also might have a problem with John because we might think that he's somewhat judgmental, that he's maybe lacking in grace and compassion. I mean, after all, he's telling people to repent. And if we're telling people to repent, we're also telling people that they need to change, right? I mean, in some sense, he's judging that their lives need change. He's saying that everything isn't okay in their lives. And we might have a problem with that. And we might also accuse him of meddling in our lives instead of just preaching like he should. You know, sometimes we draw this distinction. If if you're talking about the sin in other people's lives, if you're talking about how other people need to change, then that's good preaching. But if you start talking about the sin in my life and you start talking about the fact that I need to change, well, then you've gone to meddling. You're meddling in my life. And John wasn't afraid to meddle in people's lives. So we might call John a troublemaker. He rocks the boat. He upsets the status quo. He's confrontational. He's confrontational with church leaders and he's confrontational with political leaders. I think we might tell John that he needs to shave, put on a suit, go to the right school, and maybe just keep his mouth shut. I don't know if John would attract much of a following today. But John was attracting crowds then. Even though he was a one-note preacher, even though his message was, get ready, God's kingdom is coming. Get ready, God's kingdom is at hand. Get ready, God's kingdom is coming. A one-note preacher. So the question that people might have had for John was, how do we get ready? You keep telling us to get ready for the coming kingdom. How do we do that? Well, in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 10, we Hear how John thinks people should get ready for the coming kingdom. John 3, 10 through 14 tells us how John would have us prepare for the coming kingdom. Listen to what Luke records. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers came and asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So for John, preparing for the kingdom looks something like this. Share our surplus with those who are in need. Don't store up. Don't hoard. If you have more than you need... Give to those who have less than they need. It also looks something like this. Collect only what we're owed. John says, don't use your position to take advantage of other people. And for John, getting ready for the coming kingdom looks something like this. Be content with what you have. Don't seek to enrich yourself at the cost of others. For John, that's getting ready for the coming kingdom. For John, preparing for the kingdom is living kingdom values now. It looks something like 
prepare for the coming kingdom by helping bring justice to the world now. Prepare for the coming kingdom by helping bring mercy to the world now. Prepare for the coming kingdom by helping bring grace to the world now. Prepare for the coming kingdom by helping bring love to the world now. So John's a troublemaker. He's odd, he's strident, he's politically incorrect. He's a one-note preacher. But the question still remains, was John really the new Elijah? Was John really the one sent from God to prepare the way for Jesus? Well, I think the answer is yes, for multiple reasons. And one is that the gospel writers were absolutely convinced that John was the one prophesied about by Isaiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them report some version of this sentence. John is the one who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. They're convinced. In fact, in John's gospel, he records this interaction between John the Baptist and some Jewish priests who came out to John just to ask that question. Are you the one? Are you really the one? John 1.20, John records, He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely. I am not the Christ. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. He was also a man of few words, apparently. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. He's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. But John is an Elijah-like figure. He sent from God to prepare the way for the Messiah. But are we still sure that he's the one? I mean, after all, this is John's own testimony about himself. Well, the gospel writers were convinced not just because of John's testimony. They were convinced because Jesus was convinced that John was the one. Ultimately, it was Jesus who confirms John's role as God's messenger. And Jesus confirms John's role first during their very first encounter. Matthew three thirteen. we read part of this a while ago leading up to this in Matthew chapter 3. Starting in verse 13, we read this, a continuation of that story. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him by saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What an encounter that is. Look at all the different things that are going on here. The Messiah comes to John to be baptized. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. And then God himself speaks. This all affirms that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But we also shouldn't lose sight of the fact that when John first encounters Jesus in the water of the Jordan, his ministry and his message are embraced They're embraced by Jesus, they're embraced by the Spirit, and they're embraced by God the Father. When John says, get ready, that message is embraced. When John is saying, repent, that message is embraced. 
when John says, you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, that message is embraced. And when John says, start living kingdom values now, that message is embraced. See, this encounter signals that Jesus not only approves of John's ministry and John's message, it shows that Jesus believes that his ministry will be a continuation of John's ministry. In some ways, I wish the story ended there. With this neat passing of the baton, the the handing off of the torch from John to Jesus. But it doesn't end there. There's a second, even though it's indirect encounter, that Jesus has with John. We find that in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Luke 7, 18. John's in prison. And the reason he's in prison is because of what he said about Herod. Because he confronted Herod. Because he spoke about Herod's sin in taking his brother's wife. So, in order to shut him up, at least to try to shut him up, Herod had him put in prison. So, John's in prison, but he's still in contact with his disciples. He's still having conversation with his disciples. So, John's disciples told him about all these things. They told him about the healings. They told him about the raising of the dead. They told him about the growing reputation of Jesus. So, John called two of his disciples to him. And he sent them to the Lord. He sent them to Jesus to ask Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight... The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Isn't that interesting? It seems like John just wants to make sure, is it really you, Jesus? Are you really the Messiah? Or should we keep looking? He's not giving up, but he just wants to make sure as he's in prison. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't answer as we might expect. I would expect Jesus to say something. Go back and tell John, you were there. You saw the Spirit descend. You were there. You heard God's voice. Of course I'm the one. But that's not what he chooses to do. Jesus instead simply points to the ways that the kingdom of God is showing itself in his own ministry. People are being set free from bondage. Healing and restoration Are taking place, and the poor are finally receiving good news. So, in this second encounter with Jesus, Jesus affirms his identity as the Messiah, but he affirms his identity as the Messiah who delivers people from bondage. That's the kind of Messiah Jesus is. Jesus affirms to John that he was right, that John is right, the kingdom is indeed near. In fact, not only is it near, it's breaking in right now. It's in evidence right now. He says, look at what God is doing right now for the oppressed. It's a taste of God's kingdom in Jesus' ministry. And then after John's messengers leave, Jesus has this to say about John. Verse 24 of Luke 7. Jesus says, what did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by wind? If not, why did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? 
No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But why did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. He's more than a prophet. He's the one that Isaiah spoke of. And no greater human being has ever lived. So when Jesus affirms John's greatness, he also affirms that John's call to repentance and John's call to baptism are rooted in the very purposes of God. John is working for God. John is a messenger from God. John is accomplishing the purposes of God. So John's call is God's call. John's call is Jesus' call. So John's call for repentance is God's call for repentance. And John's call for baptism is, John, is God's call for baptism. So as we near the end of our time, I want to reinforce a few of the lessons that we can take away from John's encounters with Jesus. And then we'll consider how we can best respond to John the troublemaker and his message and his ministry. The first lesson I want to reinforce is that John's message is as radical and threatening today as it was then. John's message is as radical and threatening today as it was then. So if we want to follow in the steps of John, we need to understand that our message is going to be considered radical and our message is going to be considered threatening when people hear it. And it's threatening and it's radical because calling people to repent still smacks of judgment. And people don't like to feel they're being judged. Calling people to change their lives implies that you think there's something wrong with their lives. And people don't like to have their lives pointed to as being something that's wrong. Calling on people to be baptized for forgiveness of sins will still get you labeled as being narrow-minded. And it will still get you labeled as being judgmental. But we, we as people of God, we as a church, can't let fear of being called judgmental keep us from following in the steps of John and keep us from following in the steps of Jesus and call people, including people in the church, to repentance. That's the task that we've been given. But we need to understand that our call for repentance has to come with a loving intent to heal, a loving intent to restore a loving intent to bring people back to the God who loves them, never with a hateful condemnation of souls. That's not what we're called to do. The second lesson I want to reinforce that we can learn from John and his encounters with Jesus is that God's kingdom messengers aren't one size fit all. They don't all look the same. They don't all sound the same. I love what Jesus said in Luke seven thirty one. He was speaking to the people and he said, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say, He has a demon. Then the Son of Man came eating and drinking and you said, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proven right by all her children. 
We need to understand that God has always used a variety of messengers to deliver his message. And why is that? I think there's many reasons for that. But one is is so that God can show that it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. It's about the message that comes from God. So God has used insiders and he's used outsiders. He's used educated and he's used those who are not educated. He's used young and he's used old. He's used articulate and those who aren't so articulate. He's used messengers that look like a preacher and sound like a preacher. And he's he's used people who don't look like a preacher and don't sound like a preacher to bring his message. And we need to understand that just because somebody looks like a preacher and sounds like a preacher doesn't mean they are a messenger for God. We also need to understand that just because someone doesn't look like a preacher and doesn't sound like a preacher, that doesn't mean that they're not a messenger from God. What we need to look at is the message. If the message is from God, then so is the messenger. If the message isn't from God, then neither is the messenger, regardless of what they look like and regardless of what they sound like. Third lesson that we can reinforce from John and his encounters with Jesus is that God calls his servants to a life of significance, not success. God calls his servants to a life of significance, not success. By any normal way of judging John's success in life, he was a failure. He ended his life in prison and then beheaded at a fairly young age. And in fact, in many ways, if you look at Jesus, you would say his life was a failure if you don't believe in the resurrection. Crucified as a criminal at a young age. And you would say that Elijah failed because he didn't turn the people back to God. Every time that he did, it was temporary, and before long they were back worshiping the pagan gods. But let me ask you this. Would you rather be Elijah or Ahab? Would you rather be John Or Herod Antipas? Would you rather be Jesus or Caesar? God calls us to follow him. And when God calls us to follow him, he's calling us to a life of significance. Not necessarily success as the world counts success. So let's end with looking at how we'll respond to John's face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And I'm going to do that by asking four questions. I'll do that with very little commentary, but four questions for us to consider as we close. The first question that I want us to all answer is this. Is John's invitation to repent for us, or is it only for others? Do we believe that we're good, we have nothing that we need to change, and it's all the people out there that John and Jesus and God are talking to? Is John's invitation to repent for us, or only for others? Second question I want to ask and for us to answer is, will we take seriously the call to live lives of purity? Live lives of purity, holy lives, in the very image of God, in the very image of John, in the very image of Jesus, and in the image of Elijah. Just like them, we can't live with one foot in God's kingdom and one foot out of God's kingdom. Both feet need to be firmly planted in God's kingdom. The third question I want you to consider is, will we live our lives in anticipation of the returning Messiah? You've probably been asked a question similar to this before. If you knew that Jesus was coming in the month of June 2014, what would you do different? What would you change in your life? 
John called people to live with the imminent arrival of the Messiah right on the doorstep. Perhaps we need to start leaving a place at our tables for the return of Jesus to remind ourselves that Jesus' return is imminent. It could happen at any time. Are we going to live our lives in anticipation of the returning Messiah? And fourth and finally, will we accept the life-changing call of John so we can fully respond to the life-giving grace of Jesus, Jesus Christ? John called people to repentance. He called for people to turn away from their old life. He called for people to turn to Jesus. And then they had access to Jesus' grace. So I hope you're here this morning ready to turn away from whatever sin is in your life. I hope you're ready to turn fully to God with both feet in his camp. I hope you're ready to live in the glorious richness and freedom that can only be found in the grace of Jesus. And if we can help you do that in any way, we would like nothing more than to point you the way to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can do that in a couple of ways. We're going to stand up and we're going to sing a song together. If you're comfortable doing so, you can walk to the front and let us know what your needs are. If you're uncomfortable with that, and I understand why you might be, there's a more private way that you can do that. You can make your way to the back. You can ask to be directed to room 104. And in that room, a couple of our elders will be there, godly people who would love to talk to you about their Savior, Jesus Christ. But if you have a need, please let us know this morning while we stand up and we sing this song together.